0: You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals.
1: Covering the White House may seem like journalism's equivalent of reaching the Everest summit, and nowadays it just might be just as challenging given that President Trump is unrestrained in displaying his animosity towards the media and particularly the New York Times where my guest, Peter Baker, is now Chief White House Correspondent. Few have had more experience in reporting on the nation's chief executive, as Peter also covered President Obama for The Times and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush for The Washington Post. He's in Dallas today for an event with John Meacham, Tim Naftali, and Jeff Engel, fellow co-authors of a book that was published late last year, Impeachment in American History, that was featured in our Global IQ Minute podcast of November 20th. It's great to have you back in Dallas. Great to be here. I should remind everyone that you did co-author the first story that broke the president's relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Take us back to how that happened.
0: January uh, 1998. It's hard to remember. (laughs) It was 21 years ago. Those were those were interesting days. You all remember, of course, the president had been sued by Paula Jones, an Arkansas State employee for sexual harassment. And as part of that lawsuit, the lawyers were looking at other examples of instances where he might have conducted himself inappropriately with women who worked under him. And one of the people that they heard about was Monica Lewinsky. She had worked at the White House as an intern and later a junior employee. So he gave his deposition in January 1998 and, you know, Drudge Report had some sort of tantalizing Thing about how Newsweek had a piece that had been killed about an intern named Monica Lewinsky, and my, my colleague uh, Sue Schmidt and Tony Losey and I chased it down and broke the story that uh, Ken Starr was investigating whether the president of the United States had committed perjury and obstruction of justice in the lawsuit.
1: That must have been quite an experience when you walked in there and said, look what I've just heard.
0: It was, and it was a story like we had never expected to ever write. I remember writing it that night with, again, with Sue Schmidt and and then walking home at two in the morning thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to come of this? This is a pretty sensational thing to to write about a president. And we didn't know what was true and what wasn't true at the time. All we knew was there was an investigation. The president had testified and we hadn't seen what he had said under oath. We didn't know the truth of his relationship or not. We didn't know anything, and we were trying to find out as much as we could, as fast as we could.
1: Ken Starr was at the World Affairs Council a few weeks ago, uh, shortly after the publication of of his book, Mm. Contempt. And one of the things that he said to our audience was that perhaps in hindsight, there should have been a censure of Mm. the president rather than impeachment. Would you agree with that?
0: Well, enough for me to say what should or shouldn't happen. I think the censure would have been bipartisan, which would have been a different ending to the episode, because impeachment was a largely a Republican vote rather than a bipartisan vote, is still debated to this day as to how legitimate it was. And so because it wasn't a bipartisan ending, you know, President Clinton will still say, I was in the right, I was defending the constitution against egregious overreach. Republicans will say, we were the ones defending the rule of law against a president who had, had violated it. And there isn't that sense of closure that might have been had there been a bipartisan outcome. You know, Newt Gingrich said afterwards, of course, he had been the Speaker of the House, Republican, had driven a lot of the initiative to impeach President Clinton at the time. He later said, look, maybe the final result was what it should have been, which is an impeachment but not a removal from office by the Senate. And in effect, that is a historic center in effect, even though the country didn't want him removed. That's what the polls said at the
1: time. So let's go to where we are today. We have another president that certainly going through some trials and tribulations. What might President Trump learn from the experience that Bill Clinton underwent?
0: We've already seen some of what Bill Clinton taught us in President Trump's response to this. President Trump has, in the last year, taken on the investigators and tried to discredit their inquiry into him in the same way that President Clinton did with Ken Starr. Now, President Trump does more of that himself directly. President Clinton left it to his allies and aides. But the strategy was the same, which is to call into question the investigators themselves and their actions rather than focus attention on what the presidents might or might not have done. And in doing so, you make it less about accountability and scrutiny and facts and more about a partisan battle. And that's what the president wanted. President Clinton wanted it to be a partisan battle because as long as it's a partisan battle, they would have the votes to stop a two-thirds conviction in the Senate. That's the same strategy in effect today. As long as President Trump makes it a partisan thing, Republicans don't vote for it, then he can't be removed from office.
1: Do you see any weakening right now among the Republicans?
0: Not at the moment. Republicans in Washington don't particularly like President Trump. He's not one of them in their view. They disagree with him on some major policy issues, particularly things like trade and Russia alliances and issues like Syria and Afghanistan, and you do see lately some willingness on the part of Republicans to disagree with him on policy. They didn't go along with him, for instance, on this barter wall. In the end, after the five-week shutdown, they went along with a compromise that didn't give him the money he was looking for. They basically abandoned him on that and forced him to sign something he didn't want to sign. That's different than an impeachment. And I don't think we see, at this point, any signs that a significant number of Republicans in Congress are willing to break with the president when it comes to the issue of whether he stays in office.
1: No doubt covering President Trump has its own set of challenges, and you've covered several presidents, Trump with his reliance on Twitter and going directly to the American public. What's it been like?
0: <laughs> it's been unlike any other president. I think that we, uh, we can all agree with that. Look, he has shattered all sorts of norms. He has done things no other presidents, at least in the modern era, would have done, both publicly and otherwise. That's what he intended to do. That's what he sold his voters on. He was going to be a change agent. He was going to be, in effect, a bull in the China shop. They like that about him. I think people who enjoy his presidency enjoy the idea that he's out there mixing things up and going against the way things have always done. To those who have been in Washington for a long time, Republicans and Democrats, is a great feeling of consternation about this because the norms are there for a reason. Presidents do not typically pressure the Justice Department into taking actions with regard to themselves or their friends and associates. That's something that was not seen as appropriate or acceptable thing to do. Presidents are not supposed to, or at least haven't in the past, gone after other people or their critics in such a visceral, personal playground kind of way. He is not, to use the phrase people use presidential and he says look you know so be it that's not who i am i'm, I'm not somebody who's going to play by those rules
1: so you've observed him now for over two years has he changed has he grown in office at all
0: well he said the other day he says he's learning He says, i'm, I'm learning i'm changing you know he said the other day look the reason he didn't go for the wall money in his first two years when he had a republican congress is because i was still new he said to this i'm learning from this now i don't know whether the way he's learning is the way other people would want him to learn because what he ended up doing was having a 35-day government shutdown, the longest in history, without actually getting the money that he was asking for. So it didn't work in that sense. He says it did work because it educated the public, but the polls don't suggest that there's some great movement toward his position on that issue. Is he learning, in some ways, You know, you can make the argument that some of the people he's putting in positions of power after the first team have been more attuned to his way of thinking as opposed to strangers he didn't get along with like Rex Tillerson or Jim Mattis Mattis. and so forth. He is who he is, and he's not going to change in a fundamental way. He is not going to suddenly adapt himself to be a
1: Washington creature. Certainly, is an interesting period watching the State of the Union and seeing all the acting Secretary of this or that.
0: He says, "I like acting better. I have more flexibility." Problem with that is it means you're also not involving the Senate, which has a constitutional role in helping to select people for high office.
1: And it doesn't give anyone confidence within those institutions. It keeps them off
0: balance, absolutely. If you don't really think you have the job, if you're constantly on probation, in effect, it means that you don't have nearly as much wherewithal to necessarily disagree with the president, for instance. And that is the role sometimes for advisors to say, look, Mr. President, you're suggesting this, here's why. You might think otherwise, you don't necessarily do that in public, but in private you would hope advisors of the president give him alternate ideas and alternate understandings of the issues. If they are not confident in their position enough to do that, that obviously has a consequence.
1: You and your colleagues at the Times have just done fabulous reporting. How do you divide up the beat that you have, <laughs> especially with Maggie Heckerman and others.
0: Yeah, uh, Maggie is fantastic. She's our star. Well, She's known Trump for years, going back to New York. She worked for the tabloids up there and had interactions with him at the time. And they have a very interesting relationship in which he both seems to want to get her approval and is angry that he doesn't get it. And so it's interesting. We have six of us total on the White House beat. It never used to be that way. When I started on the White House beat in 1996, we had two people, and that was thought to be enough went up to three after nine eleven, four four with Obama, and now we have six because there's so much to cover. And we take turns doing duty and we all have our own sort of areas of special interest. Frankly, even six isn't enough.
1: One of your areas of special interest is foreign policy and you've written a lot about this administration and Russia. Yeah. How do you see it now? One thing that Michael McFall said uh, when he was here a few weeks ago, he goes, essentially he agrees with the policies that mm-hmm. we're doing, but what's so interesting it does not reflect really what the president seems to want.
0: Yeah, I've seen. I've seen that Mike says that, and I, I, my wife and I were based in Moscow for four years for the Washington Post, so we have a special interest in Russia. And I think you know Mike puts his finger on something important, which is that there are two different approaches to Russia. There is the way the president treats Putin and Russia, and there's the way his administration does. And he has authorized, or at least allowed, his administration to take some tough actions, sanctions, and shipping weapons to Ukraine and expelling some diplomats. Having said that, he himself has made a point of never directly criticizing Vladimir Putin, and even in fact, seeming to take Vladimir Putin's word on issues like the Russian interference in the election over the word of his own intelligence directors. The dichotomy between his own approach to Russia, which is so stark and so unlike any other, especially Republican president, and then the way his team has approached it is one of the things that draws suspicion to. This investigation, why is he like that? Why is he so eager to curry favor with Vladimir Putin when he's willing to insult almost every other person on the planet even the people he actually likes and gets along with for the most part, his allies in Congress, Republicans, for instance, much less the allies abroad, he's squabbled with and quarreled with. And the one person he has consistently not done that with is Vladimir Putin.
1: Peter, how much of that is his personality or just strategy? It's hard to separate these things. There's no question
0: his personality is one that favors Fistikovs. His critics would call it a bully, but there's a playground quality to it. Again, it's not just against his adversary, sometimes even against his friends. Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, other Republicans have been on the receiving end of his blasts almost as much at times as the democrats again in a way that's what makes him such an interesting and different kind of president most presidents don't attack members of their own party even when they're frustrated with them this one doesn't have a problem with that and he expects people to then get past that
1: as we wrap up you and your wife susan are working on a book that will certainly be on the bookshelf of all members of world affairs councils (laughs) tell us about the book
0: we're working on a biography of james baker the former secretary of state good texan of course and he has been cooperating and he's given us interviews and he's uh, let us have access to his papers. So we've been very lucky to be able to dive into his life in a way that nobody else has. It's odd that nobody's done a biography of him. Because what
1: might surprise us the most that oh, you can tell us now? so
0: much. He's such an interesting guy. Uh, obviously, Secretary of State had a really climactic moment in our history. The end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, the first Gulf War. So many things happened on that four years. But beyond that, he also ran five presidential campaigns. It's, imagine like Henry Kissinger and Carl Rove rolled into one, right? You just don't have somebody who's both a statesman and a political mastermind. And he was both those things in his career. Basically, he touched on every important thing that happened in Washington for a generation.
1: Does he regret not running for president?
0: I don't think he regrets not running for president. I think he might, in his heart of hearts, regret not being president. I think he thinks... And a lot of people agree that he would have been a good president. I don't think he had the stomach or the interest in going through what we require these days of our candidates. And so he had a chance through his friend George H.W. Bush, as well as Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford, to help run the country in a real way without having to go through the ordeal that we put our candidates through.
1: Well, I can't wait to read the book. I know our listeners feel the same way. Again, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on the publication of Impeachment. You and your co-authors do such a good job.
0: Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's
1: great to be here. Thank you
0: for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.